0: And let me tell you what we're going to be doing today and the next uh, several weeks in this hour. Today we're going to be uh, looking at a biblical perspective on race relations as best we can. So I do that with some fear and trembling, but I've been asked about it by a number of you because of things that are going on, and uh, we were able to, in our schedule as we round out the summer... Uh, select two Sundays that we had available to discuss current events a few weeks ago, uh, the election, and now uh, today, the race relations. So we'll start that in just a bit. But then next week, we will uh, start in this room a 10-week series on parenting, parenting with purpose. So any of you to whom that applies and you're interested, then uh, you'll be in here with us next week. And even if it doesn't apply to you, or if it does, or even if it does, I encourage you to invite someone, either way, uh, that you think might benefit from it. We've tried to make that easy by giving you printed invitations that are at the information center desk, so pick some of those up and invite uh, someone to attend. And I'd also sent you an email invitation, if you're on our email list, that you can just forward to somebody, uh, a PDF, and so you can make use of that convenient way to invite someone as well. So next week is the parenting class, but for those of you that are not interested in the parenting class, uh, and won't be part of that. We'll have a second class going through the book of Second Corinthians during that same time starting next week. Dr. Combs is going to be leading that. And that class will meet next week uh, to the south of our building here in the teen area. So if you've never been down there, if you want to check that out before you leave today, you just go out this door and down those hallways and you'll run into the teen area. But it's a kind of a wide open area. And the class for Second Corinthians will meet down there. We just don't know how many people will be in each of these classes, how many people will opt out of the parenting class and be in Second Corinthians. So that first week, we wanted to be in a, spa- a space that gave enough room for Second Corinthians. Depending on how many people are in there, it may meet there every week. If after that first week, we see that you all could fit in one of our classrooms just outside this door, then the following week, it'll move over there. But next week, it'll be in the uh, teen area. Tomorrow is our Labor Day picnic. We invite everyone to come here. It's going to be at the Ministry Center. Uh, we've done for years these picnics at uh, parks, but we're giving it a try to have it on our grounds, and that will be at the back of the building, and you won't be able to park in at least part of the parking lot in the back. You'll park up here and then uh, walk walk back there. But uh, we're having a tents uh, set up, And uh, we have a water slide for the the kids. And so we'll see how it goes. And uh, we look forward to a great time. supposed to be great weather. Noon tomorrow. And in your program, you see what it is we ask you to bring by way of food. Depending on your last name, we ask you to bring either a uh, dessert or a a side dish. A dessert and a two-liter beverage. Two-liter beverage and dessert. Or a side dish, depending on your last name. Right? Isn't that what it is? Yeah, I think that is what it is. So I'm getting a yes and a no. But read your program about that, okay? Everybody a side. Yeah, everybody brings a side. That's what it is. Thank you. Everybody brings a side dish. We don't care what your last name is. Bring the side dish, all right? And then, depending on your last name, you either bring a two-liter or a or a dessert. All right. Very good. So that will be tomorrow at uh, at noon. Now, to set up those tents, guys, we need some help. So as soon as we're done with this hour... If some of you guys would be willing to stick around for that, that would be greatly appreciated, and that will be at the back of the building. So if after we're done here, guys, if you'll go there, you can be led in uh, setting up those uh, setting up those tents. All right, the last few years have seen an escalation in racial tension in our country. I think that's fair to say. Well-publicized events... Particularly, shootings of black men by police have sparked protests and riots, and in some places where this has happened, just general uh, general lawlessness. So we've all seen it, and we've read about it, and most of us, if not all of us, have reacted to it. But we don't react in the same way. We don't react to these kinds of events in the same way because we have very different views. And we have very different views because we have very different experiences. So one of the first things I want you to, to get, and in fact, this is the main, probably the main thing I want you to get out of our time together, is that white Americans and black Americans bring very different perspectives to the events that occur. And each side does not give enough attention to trying to learn the perspective of the other so that you can have some understanding as to why a reaction is the way it is. And without that, then it looks to us like a completely uh, a completely parallel universe that that if you're looking at it from a black perspective, white people just don't get it. And if you're looking at it from a white perspective, you don't understand why black people see it as as they as they do. So we've all reacted, but we don't react in the same way because we have very different views, and we have very different views because we have very different experiences. And that creates a real problem for Christians in particular. Because, of course, Christians are called to love Others, regardless of color or ethnicity. And yet, black and white Christians have nearly polar opposite views of what's happening and why. So just use, let me just use this example, and probably about half or more of this group are old enough to remember the uh, OJ trial. So you have the OJ trial, and you have OJ, you know, Infamously on cable TV in the White Bronco for hours leading the police on a chase. Uh, and as the evidence drips out about OJ, it's very clear to a lot of us that OJ's guilty. And so when OJ was found not guilty, a lot of us, myself included, were absolutely stunned. How could, how could jurors think, with all the evidence marshaled against this guy, that he could possibly be not guilty? And for many, many years, I had no idea how anyone could possibly think that. And yet, if you look at it from the perspective of a black person in America, their view of that and other incidents is quite different. They see it as quite plausible that a racist police department in Los Angeles would frame a black man. Now, why do they see it as quite plausible that that would, that that would happen? Well, there's some history there. Some history that we need to know at least a little bit about. The truth is we don't know each other very well because we live in these still mostly segregated Uh, Areas and cultures. And we, as Christians who want to love people regardless of their race or ethnicity, want to know or should want to know others so that we can love others better. Let me say that again. We should want to know others so that we can love others better. We know so that we can love and. That means we communicate with one another in order to know. But we don't often communicate with one another. There's much that we don't know about each other, in large part because we don't communicate. So you and I, most of us in here as as white Christians, don't know how our black brothers and sisters look at things. And often it's because we haven't asked. Well, I've recently done some researching and some asking, so I'm going to give you a very broad and sketchy outline, but I hope that some of this will help us, those of us in the white community, to better understand what it means to live as a 13% minority in what you perceive to be, at times, a hostile environment. So just that alone, just step back and think about that, 13%. The African-American community, the black community, makes up 13% of the population in America. So you're a relatively small minority, and your experiences tell you that that's a, a hostile environment in which you exist as a minority. Now, we could easily go back to slavery, As the beginning of why that perception exists. This is a hostile environment for me as a black minority to live in America. Going back to slavery. But you're all familiar with slavery, uh, or at least familiar with the fact of slavery. Familiar with the Civil War and the war of the North, between North and South. You're familiar with the Emancipation Proclamation that uh, freed the, the slaves. But you may not be familiar, so you're familiar with that, but you may not be familiar with a few other things. Just 101 years ago, last year was the 100th anniversary of the release of a movie, a film called Birth of a Nation. Birth of a Nation. Let me read to you about Birth of a Nation. On the evening of March 21st, 1915, President Woodrow Wilson attended a special screening at the White House of The Birth of a Nation, a film directed by D.W. Griffith and based on The Klansman, a novel written by Wilson's good friend, Thomas Dixon. The film presented a distorted portrait of the South after the Civil War, glorifying the Ku Klux Klan. And denigrating blacks. It falsified the period of reconstruction. Now the period of reconstruction is that period after the Civil War. It falsified the period of reconstruction by presenting blacks as dominating southern whites. Let me just stop there. There was this idea that blacks were now freed and they're sort of marauding through the south. And they're dominating dominating whites. And that's what was presented in this film. It falsified the period of Reconstruction by presenting blacks as dominating southern whites, almost all of whom are noble in the film. All the whites are noble in the film. And the blacks are sexually forcing themselves upon white women. The Klan was portrayed as the South's savior from this alleged tyranny. Not only was this portrayal untrue, it was the opposite of what actually happened. During Reconstruction, whites dominated blacks and assaulted black women. The Klan was primarily a white terrorist organization that carried out hundreds of murders. After seeing the film, an enthusiastic Wilson, now again, this is President Woodrow Wilson, seeing a special screening of that in the White House, he remarked, quote, it's like writing history with lightning, to see it on film. And my only regret is that it is all so terribly true. Now that's 100 years ago. That's after the end of slavery. It's the turn of the last century. And you have a president of the United States watching a film like that and believing it. He, President Wilson, is quoted in the movie itself. There's just uh, text on the screen quoting him, saying this, the white men were roused by a mere instinct of self-preservation until at last there had sprung into existence a great Ku Klux Klan, a veritable empire of the South to protect the Southern country. Woodrow Wilson uh, was the son of a minister. He was a Presbyterian. In fact, he had been president of Princeton University, which began as a Presbyterian university, and then he became and then he became president. He was a, a very pious man. He professed to be to be a Christian, and I bring that up for this reason that not only do you have these extreme racist views that some of us know nothing about, birth of a nation, being shown at the White House, dignitaries there, not just the president, and other dignitaries, and this is the way it was viewed. Uh, but there was, for centuries and, and certainly for decades, religious justification given for this racism. Many... Presbyterians, southern Presbyterians in particular, but many Presbyterians, many, many, many Baptists were involved in uh, racist uh, racist events, racist writings, and in a strong belief in segregation, if not white supremacy. In fact, that novel upon which the birth of a nation was based, The Klansman, was written by a Baptist pastor. In the South. Okay, so that's a hundred years ago. I'll bring it up to date in in just a bit. But I grew up in a racially segregated town in terms of where we lived. I grew up in Ecorse, and if you know the terrain of Ecorse, uh, you know that there is Southfield and Outer Drive, and both of them go to the river the Detroit River. And my house was right in between both Southfield and Outer Drive. But Outer Drive was the dividing line when I was growing up between the black side and the white side. There were no uh, black residents on our side of Outer Drive. And as far as I know, no white residents on the other side. Ecourse High School is located on Outer Drive to this day so it's right on that racial boundary so kids would young people would come together at high school but they were not together they didn't live together in their in their neighborhoods and it's it's a little wonder that when the 67 riots occurred in detroit there were riots in ecorse as, as well so i grew up in a segregated town but it's always i've always wondered why is there this residential segregation why has there been that for all of these decades i saw it i lived in it but i don't know why it happened and that's an important question for me because much of the crime that we see going on is happening in ghettos communities where there are where there are housing projects where you have black people congregated and and few white people. And so from a black or white perspective, you look at that and you go, look at what they're doing to each other. Black on black crime. They're in these communities and they're killing each other. But let's step back and ask another question. Why are they in those communities to begin with? Why are there all these black people living to themselves? in urban areas and other places. So I'll give uh, uh, thanks to uh, Cliff, Cliff Banks, for passing on to me some research that he's been doing for several years on something called uh, restrictive uh, covenants, residential covenants, restricting where people can live. And one excerpt from some of what Cliff supplied to me says this, While slavery gets much of the blame for continuing racial tensions in the U.S., the widespread use of racially based restrictive loan covenants throughout the last century may have contributed more to the challenges of today. Restrictive loan covenants were agreements between property owners and neighborhood associations that prohibited the sale or rental of certain properties to races other than whites. These covenants existed only in rare circumstances prior to the 1900s, but their usage exploded in the early 1900s as northern cities, many in the Midwest, experienced large numbers of blacks moving from the south to take advantage of manufacturing jobs. Racially motivated covenants began in the 1880s, but they were included in deeds for single tracts of properties. The usage was not widespread nor were they included in the legal documents governing huge swaths of property. But By 1950, more than half of all subdivisions built in the U.S. included racially based loan covenants prohibiting blacks from living in them. So by 1950, some of you were alive at that time. So by by 1950 more than half of all the subdivisions built included a prohibition on blacks living there. The migration created a burden for these cities as new groups of people began competing for jobs and housing. Cities such as Chicago and Philadelphia, Milwaukee, St. Louis, Indianapolis, Cincinnati, and Kansas City saw a huge migration of blacks move in. The black population in Detroit jumped over 600%. From 1910 to 1920, other cities saw similar numbers as black populations grew by hundreds of thousands. So you've got this influx now of people into the North. What are you going to do? You're going to segregate, and there are going to be places where uh, non-white people are not going to be able to, not going to be able to live. So racism contributed to the residential segregation that has been going on for for decades and in in large part explains why then we watch on television and we see these people living in these places and in sometimes really horrific uh, places and horrific conditions. All right, so there's that. Let me just continue. So that we can know each other in an effort to better love each other. We can know the perspective that somebody has. If you're a black person in America, you know about those things. If you're a white person, very often you don't. And then there are things like the Tuskegee Experiment. And if you've never heard of that, that was started in 1932. And it was uh, a test run by the government upon black males without their consent To, uh, test for, for syphilis and test, uh, and test, uh, prescriptions for, for syphilis. That was supposed to go for about 18 months, that test. The government did it covertly. It went for 40 years. It didn't end until 1972. There were mustard gas experiments done by the military in which the military divided people along racial lines and put them and put them in conditions where they were exposed to mustard gas to see how different races of people respond without telling them and then of course there even after the end of slavery in the mid 19th century For many years after that, through Reconstruction and into the 20th century, you had the Jim Crow laws of the South. And then we've seen the, on television at least, the Civil Rights Movement in the 50s and 60s. And you saw how the government and the police reacted to the desire for black citizens to have equal rights. You've seen that. You've seen the fire hoses and all of that, right? The bombings. The bombing in Birmingham of a in 1964 of a Baptist church by Klansmen and the killing of four young black girls who were going to Sunday school. All of those kinds of things. Now, you could go on and on and on with that kind of stuff. So now, as you look at what's happening today, can you at least begin to see why if you are a minority, a black part of the black minority in the United States, you would look at the events happening in a different way. The government and the man have always been out to get us. And there are bona fide and documented conspiracies of the government that they didn't tell us anything about. Inflicted upon us. So that now... We can easily believe that the Los Angeles Police Department would frame a black man because this is the, the history. Now, as you fast forward, you have the Charleston church shooting a couple of years ago. And I believe it was 14 people, I don't remember how many people were killed while they were having a prayer meeting in Charleston, South Carolina few years ago, you had the Trayvon Martin uh, killing. Back in 2009, the Boston police arrested a black Harvard professor who was at night trying to get into his house, his house. And someone called the police and the police came and they arrested Henry Louis Gates, who owned the house. Now Gates was had been drinking, he'd been at a party, he was confused, so he was at his own house. So he didn't just, you know, he wasn't just trying to get in like normal, he was trying to find which door and looking through windows and you know that kind of stuff. So there's more to the story than just he's trying to get in his own house. But President Obama immediately concluded that the police had quote acted stupidly. So the president blamed the police immediately. You have In 2013, 2014, the death of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri. And that is really credited or blamed with sparking the most recent tensions that have gone on for the last couple of years. And you remember that story. That initially, uh, after Michael Brown was, was shot and killed, some of the initial stories was he had his hands up, he was shot in the back, He had his hands up and said, Hands up, don't shoot. And in fact, there was a movement, short-lived, because the facts came out, but there was a movement uh, called that, Hands up, don't shoot. You had people with T-shirts saying, Hands up, don't shoot. Because Michael supposedly had his hands up and said, Don't shoot. Well, it turns out that that was not the case. In fact, a video came out of Michael Brown, who initially was described as just this young man who was looking forward to going to college, was heading to his grandma's house, uh five minutes before he was shot he was robbing a store some of you remember seeing he was a huge guy and he had the store owner by the neck and a robbery had been reported and then this officer had heard about that two black men he sees these two black men and uh, that that's the context of what happened there he was not shot in the back and in fact the officer who shot him was uh, exonerated by the the Justice Department of the Obama administration. But that led to the Black Lives Matter m- movement. You have Freddie Gray in uh, Baltimore, died in the back of a police van, and six officers were prosecuted. None of them were were found guilty. But you've had, you have had men in just the last couple of years, a black man shot in the back as he was running away, shot in the back on film. You have a 12-year-old boy with a toy gun in Chicago who was shot and killed. We have, within the last two months, the two black men who were shot within days of each other, in Louisiana and, and Minnesota. And then in Dallas, you have police being targeted. So that's some of the recent history that we all know more than we would like to uh, about. But we have these different experiences and therefore different perspectives. And we get our news even from different sources and so we draw different conclusions. Now I say we get our news from different sources. I'm not making that up. You may think, depending on what side of the political spectrum you're on, you know, Fox News is all you need because Fox News is fair and balanced. I'm not. That's not a statement. I'm just telling you what they say. Or MSNBC is all you need. So you've got liberal MSNBC, you've got conservative. You know, Fox News, CNN tries to be in between, I guess. But I have, I have spoken with uh, some of our, my black friends, and I've said, where do you get your news from? And many of them don't get their news from any of those sources. They actually watch channels that you've never heard of, that give a perspective on what's happening that you and I have, have never heard. Just to, again, pound home this different perspective and ways of looking at, at things. You know, when Barack Obama was elected president, there was a a groundswell of pride among many Americans, both black and white. Black Americans only make up 13% of the population, so he he could not have been elected twice with only black votes. So you had to have a lot of non-black, a lot of white votes in order to elect Barack Obama. But the pride in the black community, putting aside the political views, the pride in the black community was just... It's just unbelievable when a black man is able to achieve something of significance, and that's because of this. That's because of this history and this struggle. Now, I'll, I'll give you an example, kind of an obscure one, but it stands out to me. There was a uh, uh, college football coach named Ty uh, Tyrone Willingham. If you follow uh, college sports much, you might know who that is. But he coached Notre Dame. Uh, which, other than Michigan, is the best college football school in history. But, I mean, I just say to the Notre Dame people, it's not a bad place to go if you can't get into college. But but here's Ty Willingham, a black man, coaching Notre Dame. And for his first year, he had some, some success there, but then things went south, and he only lasted there three years. But in the three years he was there, I saw an interview of Ty Willingham by Stuart Scott. Now, Stuart Scott died earlier this year or last year, but he was an ESPN African-American sportscaster. And I remember that interview, and Ty Willingham is answering the questions, and, you know, it was just another interview to me. But after it was over, Stuart Scott said, that's the most, quote, that's the most impressive interview I have ever done. From his perspective, Ty Willingham was the greatest. And I listened to it, and I've heard a lot of football coaches, and, and he was he was a good football coach. You don't get to be Notre Dame's coach if you're not. But it was nothing spectacular. But from Stuart Scott's perspective, it was wonderful. And he was undoubtedly influenced because he was interviewing a black man coaching at this uh, institution in college sports. Some of you may remember the Ali Ali Frazier three fights in the 70s, Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier. Now, they're both black, but Muhammad Ali had refused to go to Vietnam. He had been stripped of his heavyweight title for a few years, and then he, he came back to box, and everyone was waiting for him to fight Joe Frazier. Joe Frazier assumed the title. And they had their first fight in 1971 after Ali came back. And polls were done. White people all wanted Joe Frazier to win. And black people all wanted Muhammad Ali to win. I remember seeing Bryant Gumbel. You know who Bryant Gumbel is. Another He's a black sportscaster. But he was being interviewed about Muhammad Ali. And he commented on that fight. And how as a little kid, he was up at night, hoping and praying that Ali would beat the white man's boxer, Frazier. And in the 14th round, Frazier knocked Ali down on the canvas, I think the only time he was ever knocked down in his entire career. And Bryant Gumbel is telling this story, and he says, I saw the film later, and he got emotional just telling the story about how Ali got knocked down, but he immediately got back up. And that meant the world to him, that he immediately got back up. You don't have me. I'm bloodied but not bowed. He lost the fight. But that's the, way, that's the way it was viewed. Now, just a little bit more on that, and I'll keep going. But that all, then, gives rise to a willingness to believe in conspiracies because there have been some conspiracies. And so you have two kind of polar opposite ways of, of viewing things. I'll give you one more incident. Back when Tiger Woods burst on the scene in 1997, he won the 1997 Masters Tournament uh, at Augusta National, a place where blacks for decades were not allowed to even be members. He goes to Augusta National and not only wins, he killed everybody. So he wins his first major uh, tournament. And at the 1997 Masters Tournament, Fuzzy Zeller, some of you may know that name, but he was a white golfer. He had won uh, the Masters and other tournaments, but he made a racist remark regarding Tiger Woods. After finishing tied for 34th, Zeller referring to the following year's Masters Dinner, for which the defending champion selects the menu. So Tiger won. Next year, he gets to select the menu when all the former champions get together. And he said of Tiger, he's doing quite well, very impressive. That little boy, you don't, you don't want to say that about black men, but that little boy is driving well and he's putting well. He's doing everything it takes to win. So you know what you guys do when he gets in here? You pat him on the back, you say congratulations and enjoy it, and tell him not to serve fried chicken next year. He then smiled and snapped his fingers and he walked away and, added or collard greens or whatever it is they serve. Now that brings us all then to what's been happening in the last few years. And how are we to think about as Christians race relations and the police and our black friends and black brothers and black brothers and sisters. I said we look at what's happening in the black community and we see black-on-black crime and the statistics are horrific and 70% of black homes don't have fathers in them, which leads to then violent behavior uh, and a number of of things going on there. So growing up in a black community today is extremely, extremely difficult. So much so that white people are afraid to go into black communities. And we kind of do our own private profiling. So here's a quote, though. And you just think about who this quote came from. There's nothing more painful to me at this stage in my life than to walk down the street and hear footsteps and start thinking about being robbed. And then I look around and I see somebody white and I feel relieved. After all we've been through, just to think we can't walk down our own streets, how humiliating. Believe it or not, that's a quote from Jesse Jackson. And Jesse Jackson says he's afraid. So I've said a lot to our white friends, let me say to our black friends, that that the fear and the concern that is going on from the white community is certainly not unfounded with all of the crime and all of the devastation that's going on. So then we have got to ask and answer some, some questions. Because as Christians, we are people of truth. We're people of truth. We're not people of conspiracies. We're not people of, I think this is the way it is. We are people of facts and we are people of truth. So a Harvard study just came out within the last two months. That's surprisingly to me, and surprisingly to a lot of people, and surprisingly to the guy who led the study, who's an African American Harvard professor. And he found that there is no difference in the numbers, even accounting for percentages. There's no there's no difference in the numbers of black people who are shot by police versus white people. This is just within the last two months. Now that's a fact. That's truth. We are people of facts and truth. But he also found, and this is unsurprising, that black people are 50% more likely to be harassed by the police. To be shoved, to be tailed, to have surveillance done, to have all kinds of things done, short of shooting them, but still all kinds of harassment. That goes on. That's also a fact and truth. So with all of that, it's all an attempt, friends, to try to help us to get to know each other so that we can love each other. So that we can know where each other is is coming from. Now, what does the Bible then teach about the way we should view the races? Let me remind you that in Genesis chapter 1, the Bible teaches that humanity is made in the image of God. And that includes all humanity of whatever color or ethnicity. So that means every person, every human being has equal value before God. There are no inferior races. There never have been and there never will be. There is one race, the human race. From a biblical perspective. And then in addition to that, you have Acts chapter 17 and verse 26. Acts chapter 17 and verse 26. And the great apostle Paul is speaking to philosophers in Athens, Greece. And in his message to them, he says this, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything rather he himself gives everyone life and breath and every everything else and then he says this from one man he made all nations and that word nations as we heard uh, last week from Jeremy Pitzley it's the same word that's used in the great commission make disciples of all ethnies, all nations all ethnicities of one man he made all the ethnicities all the nations And so we are of, in fact, the King James says there, we are of one blood. So the truth is, biblically, we're all related. We're all physically related. We all came from the first set of parents. And we're all made in the image of God. Further, Galatians 3.28. Galatians 3.28 says, In Christ there is neither bond nor free, male nor female, Jew nor Gentile, for we are all one in Christ. So that is the challenge for us as Christians, in particular as Christians, to show that we believe in this oneness first of the human race and then in particular of the body of Christ. And in order for us to show that kind of love for each other, we've got to know each other and where each other is coming from. And then lastly there's Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. And that chapter deals with the role of government. And God ordained government. That God has ordained the government to punish evildoers and to commend those who do right. God has ordained that. And in the first verse of Romans 13... Paul, who wrote it, says all of us are to be subject to, submit ourselves to the authorities, the governing authorities, because those governing authorities are established, ordained by God. And then goes on to say what they're to do. They're to punish wrong. So I want to say this, with all of that background, with all of that polar opposite ways of looking at things that we owe it to each other to get to know so that we can love each other better. With all of that, I would not want to be a police officer today. And I am compelled to say, biblically compelled to say, friends, no matter where you're coming from, white, black, Hispanic, whatever that is, be very, very, very careful in making it more dangerous for the police to do their job. And do you know why? Because the Bible teaches that humanity is depraved, is sinful. And it's a gift from God that he gives government to restrain the effects of evil. You do not want to know what it looks like. We do not want to know what it looks like to live in a lawless society. And that doesn't mean the police get it right. They certainly don't get it right all the time. It certainly doesn't mean the police are not racist. Studies have shown that police hassle and harass minorities far more than they do white people. That's a fact. That's truth. But in our reaction to that, the Bible tells us that government restrains evil and punishes wrong and that that's a good gift for us so that when you see those facts and they are painful facts that this kind of discrimination goes on bear in mind that the bible says it's better hear this it's better to have a bad government than no government and thank god for the good police we do have because if we didn't have the government restraining the effects of evil this place would be unlivable And the Bible teaches that one day that's going to happen, that God is going to remove his hand of restraint from the world. The Christians are going to be removed from the world. The Holy Spirit will be removed. People will do whatever they want, and it will be a time of trouble such as not been seen from the beginning, says Jesus. The Bible calls that the great tribulation period. So let's pray for our police and all of those who are in authority let's be thankful for them we have some police in our own congregation who are seeking to do god's work in their in their vocation but at the same time let's accept the truth and the facts that there is discrimination that goes on in the dispensing of that same of that same justice all right now i just want to reiterate and then we'll be done we are called to love each other If we're going to love each other, we've got to know each other. If we're going to know each other, we've got to communicate with each other to see where we're coming from. The Bible teaches that we are one in humanity. If we're Christians, we are one in Christ. And that God has given us gifts to help us live life in a fallen and sinful world. And one of those gifts is the gift of government and police to protect us from evil. Let's go to the Lord in prayer then. Father, we thank you for instructing us in your word about where we came from, the fact that we are all made in your image, white, black, Hispanic, whatever our race, whatever our ethnicity, we come from the same set of parents, we are all related. And so, Lord, thank you for teaching us that, about anthropology, about, about mankind, that we are all one and all related. Lord, that relationship has broken down. It is broken down because of sin. And brother fights against brother. And brother kills brother. And Lord, this is all because of sin. This is not the way that you intended it to be. And yet, we marshal our defenses and our arguments. And we yell at each other, but we don't learn from each other. Lord, in your church, you have broken down the wall that divided Jew and Gentile. You've broken down the wall that divides slave and free, male and female. All of us are one in Christ if we know Jesus. And so help us, Lord, as your church, as the body of Christ, to be people who especially show our love for one another, no matter our background, no matter the color of our skin, help us to be people who care about this so much, the testimony of Jesus and the difference that he makes. That we're willing to get to know each other and know each other's experiences. And know how that has affected us and the perspective that we bring to the events of our day. In so doing, Lord, we may well not agree on the policy prescriptions for what needs to be done. But we can still love each other in our differences. I pray, Lord, that this church will be a body of Christ that demonstrates that. And I pray that that kind of genuine love will permeate the body of Christ both in this country and, and beyond. And as a result of this, Lord, may it be true of us and your church in general that by this all men know that we're followers of yours, that we are disciples because we love one another. So we ask you, Lord, to help us Today and this week, and in the weeks and months ahead, other events may unfold today on our television screens and our newspapers. Help us, Lord, to look at them with eyes of understanding, to put ourselves in the shoes of brothers and sisters that have different experiences than we, so that we can understand the hurt and the heartache and the fear, even, that is had because of the history of racism in our country. Lord, lastly, we thank you that you have given us this country. We thank you for its freedoms. We thank you that it is still, without doubt, the greatest country on earth. And we thank you for its many blessings, including our government and including our police. May you bless them in the work that they do. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.